Good morning. Our reading this morning is going to be from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 876. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his feet at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Way to make it this morning. I know it's cold and early. Welcome to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to serve as one of the pastors here. Can you guys turn the house lights up a little bit for me, please? I can't see them very well. Maybe just a little bit. Uh, We're back into Luke this morning. Thank you. Much better. I can see your smiling faces so much better now. We're back into Luke this morning after quite some time off. Our last sermon in Luke was, I think, November 26th, I looked, and we've taken some time off for Advent. and So it's a joy to be back in the the normal rhythm of going through this gospel of Luke. We've called it the Upside-Down Kingdom. Uh, And if I had a sermon title this morning, I I would have called it Ordinary Christianity. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Lord, we do declare that you are our rock and our defender. We praise you for the words of that song, Lord. I sense such worship in your people and and thank you for giving me worship through the singing of songs to you for your glory and for each other's edification this morning. We love you and treasure you and thank you for another opportunity to gather with your people. And even those who are with us this morning that aren't yet your people, I pray, Lord, that they would sense your presence and and see the worship of us as being real and true and 
you being who you say you are and having sent your son to save us from our sins and brought us into your kingdom. And so we pray that we would live that out. We would recognize the joy of, of being your children and disciples of Jesus Christ and living lives of joyful and ordinary obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a fun story. I'm going to have to be really self-controlled because it's arguably my favorite story in my life to tell. I'm going to have to spare you some details because I don't want to take too long. We've got to get to God's word, but here it is. In 2012, my best friend at the time and I decided before we got big boy jobs, big boy careers, we were going to go do the, it seems like the American cliche thing and go backpack Europe. So we bought tickets to London, into London and out of London, but our flight home wasn't till 35 days later. So we, we landed in London, we did a clockwise circle, we hit everything we could and flew back out of London. I want to tell you about our first day of our Europe trip. We got to London, I'm not counting the, the first half a day, we got there at like 4 p.m., went out to dinner, went to bed. We were tired from 30 hours of travel. First full day in London in 2012 some of you Olympic nerds might remember um, the, the Olympics were in London in 2012. You two knew that, but some of you might have forgotten. Oh, yeah, London had the Olympics in 2012. Also, it's August, so that's peak tourist season in Europe and in London. And, and me and my friend Brian, first day, we're like, we're going to go see all the touristy stuff. So I think at this point, it's, it's like 9 a.m., we're walking to Buckingham Palace in a sea of people, and we're like 15 yards, like from me to Audrey, and some guy starts looking at Brian and giving him the squinty eyes and pointing at him. And we get closer, and the guy, the guy says to Brian, hey, I know you. And Brian's like, I'm an American, I've been here 12 hours, you definitely don't know me. And a long conversation, sparing the details, the guy had met Brian at one house party when he played baseball at North Carolina State University his junior year of college, they actually had met. Like, he knew mutual people. He had been in North Carolina. It was crazy. And so the guy says to me and Brian, you guys are here for the Olympics, right? Like, of course, you're in London in 2012. You're here to watch the Olympic Games. And we're like, yeah, right. Like, we, we spent all of our money to buy plane flights here. We bought the Eurail Pass, which meant we could get on any train, any time, and go anywhere we wanted. And we just barely have enough money for food. And the guy says, and just so you guys know, this is a true story. I'm not being hyperbolic in any way. Some of you are going to be really mad at me at the end of this story. He says, well, I have two extra tickets for the Olympics if you guys want to go. And me and Brian, Brian and I being athletes, former athletes, Nate, <laughs> we're like, if, if this was underwater basket weaving, we would go to the Olympics. And he says, well, it's actually tickets for Wimbledon for the tennis matches, center court. So you better get on the London Underground and go now. The, the, the match is starting soon. But we notice when he pulls the tickets out, it's not just this cardstock, like little tickets. It's in a trifold black book, like the drink menu at restaurants, like really nice looking we look at it and we're like, whoa, there's like a lanyard. There's something that says like Skybox Suite in here and a ticket. Let's just get over to Wimbledon. Embarrassingly enough, too, you guys, I didn't even know Wimbledon was in London. Like I'm not that much of a tennis guy. So when he said Wimbledon, I was like, oh, dang, I didn't know Wimbledon was in London. We get there. We find some people who have shirts on that look like they work there. And we're like, hey, where are these tickets? And they, they look us up and down. Two poor-looking Americans 
former athletes wearing like Nike dry fit shorts and Nike dry fit shirts and Nike shoes looking like poor but athletic. And they're like, I don't know how you afforded these tickets, but that's center court. That's right over there. So we get closer. We still get kind of lost. It's a big place. There's a lot of people. We ask one more person. They point us to a door right there, center court. We start going to open the door and a guy stops us in a James Bond tuxedo bow tie tails and says, well, I got that for you. He opens the door and says, welcome to the prestige. We start freaking out. We're going to get kicked out. They're going to think we stole these tickets. They're going to throw us in jail for like 100 years. But let's just try it. The worst thing that can happen is we get kicked out. So we get brought to our room. There's, it's a dining room. And they're like, hey, do you want some champagne before you go watch the matches? And we're like, no, we can't afford that. We have no money. And they're like, you guys, these tickets, you get whatever you want. For this whole day, the matches start in a little bit, and you can be here till eight o'clock tonight, and you can have everything you want. So we're like, "Yeah, we'll take two champagnes." This is before Christ, okay? We had our champagne, and then you tennis fans in here, you're gonna throw stuff at me right now. We go to watch the first match: Roger Federer versus an Argentinian guy named Juan Michael Del Potro. But come on, Roger Federer, like I'm not even a tennis guy, and I've seen him play live. They say, "Come after the match, come back, and we'll feed you a four-course meal, lobster tail." potatoes. I I read my journal last night. I want to give you so many more details. I can't. (laughs) After the meal, the most amazing meal of my life, and there was only eight of us in this room and six waitresses, so it was almost like a one-to-one ratio. They would even like wipe your mouth with a napkin. I'm kidding, but it seemed like that. Next match, no kidding, Novak Djokovic versus Andy Murray. Andy Murray was a Brit. He went on to win the gold medal. That match, we noticed Kobe Bryant is in the stands with us, but he has worse seats than we do. We're only three rows up. (laughs) After this match, they say, come back for tea time. And tea time is like a whole nother meal, sandwiches, danishes, and apparently a Wimbledon classic, strawberries and cream. After that match with Serena Williams versus someone else. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. One of my favorite stories to tell. But it connects to the sermon this morning. Here's how. By God's grace, Brian and I knew if, if we let this be the bar, the standard for the next 34 days in Europe, we're doomed. We know what a once in a lifetime experience or maybe two or three or four times in a lifetime, but rare that was. If, if we bring our expectations of that into the rest of the Europe, we're going to be severely disappointed. The rest of the trip, we knew, would have some awesome experiences, but most of it would just be ordinary. We'd be meeting people, learning new cultures, eating some good food, seeing some cool sights, but like an ordinary European, Christmas, uh, European travel trip. I wonder how many of us view following Jesus as something that is supposed to be continually extraordinary, nonstop, extraordinary spiritual experiences. Like every time that we have a quiet time, our morning devotions, that that it should be an extraordinary, supernatural experience. Every time we come to church, we should be floored at the magnitude of our salvation and end up literally on the floor, prostrate in tears, which would be cool. That's not the ordinary Sunday experience, the usual. Every time we, we read the Bible, there should be this amazing and worshipful insight that no one has ever seen. If no one's ever seen it, it's probably not true. That's how cults get started, but sometimes we might think that. Every sermon we hear should be as favorite as our favorite famous Christian preacher. It should be a home run. It should be a grand slam. 
Every time we serve, it should be full of joy and happiness. Like cleaning up someone's yard all day should only feel like an hour because we're just so joyfully serving King Jesus and our brother or sister in Christ or someone who's not in Christ. Every time we give financially, it should be easy. It should never be hard. And God should bless us financially back in significant ways because of our giving. And maybe because we believe those things and seek them, but we're not usually experiencing them, we're feeling disenchanted with discipleship and following Jesus. It feels boring a lot of days. It feels mundane. It feels like eating a cold bowl of oatmeal with no honey and no brown sugar. I hope and pray that none of you feel that way in the ways I've just described, because it's not realistic, nor how God ordinarily works in his people. But if you do, I have encouragement for you this morning from God's word. What I believe God is telling us through Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 19, is this. Recipients of extraordinary grace joyfully practice an ordinary life of discipleship. I want to define discipleship really quick because I know a lot of us have uh, different definitions of discipleship. As a young Christian, if you would ask me what's discipleship, I would have said it's when an older believer meets with a younger believer with the intent to do them spiritual good, which is discipleship. But I would commend to you guys a much broader definition. I think discipleship just means everything that comes with following Jesus. My life as a disciple is discipleship. Everything I do as a follower of Jesus. When an older brother or sister meets with me or an older brother meets with me to do me spiritual good, community group, when I meet with a younger brother to do him good, Sunday gathering, service, everything. So when I say discipleship throughout the sermon, that's what I mean. Everything you do and I do regarding following Jesus. The structure this morning is two points. We're going to look at ordinary discipleship, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll look at extraordinary grace, verses 11 through 19. Before we dive in, as usual, let me remind you guys of some context. We've taken quite a few weeks off, so let me quickly remind you what we've talked about so far in Luke. Is this working? Yeah, okay. So so my community group said this was helpful. At least one person said this was helpful, so I commend it to you guys. Uh, One commentator structures Luke in this way. There's one more point after 1944, but we're not there yet. So we saw in chapter 1-1 through 252, Luke's preface and the introduction of John and Jesus. Remember, these are like the Advent texts, like John the Baptist is born, Jesus Christ is born. And then in 3-1 through 4-13, we saw Jesus prepared for ministry. He's anointed by God. This is where we saw his baptism, and he was tempted in the wilderness, and he succeeded where Adam failed. And then in 4-14 through 9-50, it's his Galilean ministry. We see it's the revelation of Jesus. He's revealing who he is. He says he's the fulfillment of all the the Isianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah. He does lots of healings. He has the Sermon on the Plain, lots of teaching. And then from 951 through 1944, which is where we find ourselves this morning, this commentator has called it the Jerusalem journey, Jewish rejection in the new way. So this is where from 951, it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. It's part of his plan. He's heading there, and on his way, there's going to be a lot of confrontation between him and the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, and he's going to be teaching about this new way, this upside-down way and what it means to follow him. And most recently, way back in, at the end of November, we, we preached through chapter 16, 
We read the parable of the dishonest manager. If, if the people of this world are shrewd, Christians, you should be shrewd, you should be wise. Uh, we saw another confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. They're lovers of money. Jesus says, you, you justify yourselves, but God knows your hearts. And then finally, we read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which was a parable, again, against the Pharisees being that rich man. So with that context, let's look at the text this morning. We'll look at ordinary discipleship in verses 1 through 10. So that's those first three paragraphs. Under this point, we'll consider the disciples' relationship to sin, faith, and service. So first, an understanding of sin. The disciples, he, Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. In the context of Jesus' continual confrontations with the Pharisees, their love of money, as we just saw in chapter 16, and all of their additional rules and commandments that they had added to God's law, which we've talked about previously in Luke, and the Greek wording here, temptations to sin, which is also stumbling blocks, um, the Greek wording points to the emphasis of false teaching being the sin that Jesus is warning about here. The Greek word doesn't only mean false teaching, but it has a special emphasis on it. The definition is this. It's an enticement to sin, especially to false faith or apostasy. So Jesus says that the sin of false teaching is sure to come, and which causes stumbling blocks, but pronounces a woe on the one through whom they come. We've looked at this word woe a couple times throughout Luke. I'll remind you, it's, it's a pronouncement of coming judgment unless there is divine intervention. In other words, false teaching that leads people into lives of sin and eternal separation from God is going to be a part of this fallen world. But the false teachers are cursed. Divine judgment is coming to them unless they repent. And the Pharisees were guilty of this false teaching. That's why we see constant confrontations between them and Jesus. And not just them, but like I said, the, the scribes and the lawyers as well. In Luke 11, Jesus pronounces woes on the Pharisees and the lawyers. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. People walk over them without knowing it. A few verses later, it says in verse 52, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus is calling them false teachers whose teachings cause other people to go to hell with them. So Jesus says in verse 2 that for false teachers, it would be better for them to suffer a horrible death, having a huge stone hung around their neck, cast in the sea to certainly drown, than for them to cause someone to fall into sinful beliefs. As the saying goes, Pardon my language, but I'm using it theologically. It seems there's a special place in hell for false teachers. By little ones, Jesus isn't referring only to children. 
though it may be children may be included in the category, it's more likely meaning a disciple who needs instruction, which is all of us. It, it could be a new disciple for sure. A new disciple definitely needs instruction, but even those of us who have been following Jesus for 30 years need instruction. So little ones may does make us think of children, and children need care and protection just like we do from God. It could be a term of endearment. We're all little ones to King Jesus. So Jesus warns the disciples to pay attention to themselves in verse 3. An important thing to note is that the Pharisees were part of Israel. They weren't foreigners from the outside. False teaching most times comes from within the community of faith. So the disciple of Christ is to keep a close watch on themselves and on their beliefs. The Apostle Paul says pretty much the same thing to young Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Another translation, it says, keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. What we do flows from what we believe. Our actions in life flow from our theology. So we must know God's word and apply God's word to our lives. The call here is for us to be like the noble Bereans in the book of Acts. Many of us know these. We always commend them. In Acts 17, I think is the chapter, the apostle Paul is in Berea. And it says that the Bereans searched the scriptures to confirm that everything Paul said was true. So we as disciples of Christ should continually search and study the scriptures and test every religious statement according to God's word. This is actually one of the reasons why we don't put up the sermon text on the screen besides the reading of the scriptures. You know, when I say look at verse 8, we don't put it up here. We would love, I would love as one of your pastors to have it at least on your phone looking along with me or at most bring your Bible to church or grab one from the seat in front of you. I appreciate your trust. I know the other pastors and preachers here appreciate your trust. I'm not calling you to <coughs> stop listening to everything I say and say, okay, you said that, does it line up? But, but when I say, hey, look at verse eight, it says this and you agree, it says that. And I draw a conclusion and an application and you say, I see that, I agree, then it is authoritative in your lives. Let me bring this to our hearts here. I hope none of us here consider ourselves arch heretics. Most of us aren't going to stand right here, me included, and, and intentionally spew false teaching. But there are ways we are our own false teachers. Here's how. And this reminder hit me like a ton of bricks this week. It, I think every time, I'm pretty sure, Every time we sin, it's a result of believing a false teaching, or at least a result of not believing the true teaching, not living what we say we believe. When we lash out in anger, sinful anger, it's usually because we're falsely believing that, that I'm in control, that we're in control, we're the king of our own kingdom or queen of our own kingdom, that our lives are supposed to be easy and pain-free, <clears throat> or that someone a lot of times our kids have broken our kingdom rules as if they exist for us and to obey the things in my kingdom. When we look at someone <clears throat> with lust, if we're married, 
It's because we're believing that we don't have to take the covenant we made with our spouse seriously. And if we're married or single, it's because we're not believing that the person we're looking at or thinking about is made in the image of God and is not an object created for our pleasure. I tried to think of more, you guys. I can't think of one example of our sinning that does not flow from false beliefs. This is helpful in diagnosing our sin, isn't it? As Dan and Nancy took Audrey and I through CTO, this was part of it. So every time I've, I've fallen into sin, I've been angry or whatever else, I think, what false belief am I, am I thinking right now? <clears throat> That's why we have to pay attention to ourselves. I don't know who put this here, but I'm drinking it. Thank you. We aren't just to pay attention to ourselves, though. We're to pay attention to our brothers and sisters in the faith. So the text says, if a brother or sister sins, whether it be any sin or the sin of false teaching, Jesus says that we must rebuke them, admonish them, call them to repent of their sin. You guys know this is the first step of church discipline. A lot of us think of church discipline as the third step, where, where the unrepentant sinner gets excommunicated. But hopefully... We're doing church discipline, step one, all the time. We know each other's lives. We, we call each other out on sin. We repent of it. We, we call each other to the gospel. That's, that's church discipline, brothers and sisters. And, and if a brother or sister does repent, we are to forgive. If they sin against us seven times and repent seven times, we must forgive them, it says. It doesn't say we should or we can, even those are true. It says we must. Now, because of the gospel, we can and we should forgive. Forgiven people forgive people. But also, because of the gospel, because we are citizens of an upside-down kingdom, we must obey this command. Now, this does beg the question, do we have to forgive only if people repent? Aren't there other passages that talk about the necessity to forgive no matter what? I would say, yes, if you've read the whole Bible, we are to forgive all the time. Even when people don't repent. Here's an illustration that came to me this week. We have little kids. We have three little kids. Let's say Audrey goes all out and she makes an amazing dinner. Steak and potatoes and asparagus. When we tell the kids... Eat your vegetables. Eat your asparagus. We're not negating the necessity that they eat their steak and potatoes as well, right? We're just like making sure they know, like eat the green things too. In the same way, Jesus isn't negating the necessity to forgive even if someone doesn't repent. He's just saying in this case, when they do repent, even if they sin seven times and they repent seven times, you must forgive them. There's also an important call here for the disciple to follow Jesus in community. It doesn't make sense apart from community. Living lives of holiness and righteousness is not just individual pursuits. They are actually primarily communal pursuits. I hope everyone in here is in a friendship with a brother or sister, at least one friendship, maybe a few. Hopefully, if you're in a community group, you can say it's a few, where you're pursuing holiness together, repenting and forgiving as needed. Friends, that's ordinary discipleship. 
just regular, old, plain, old, ordinary following Jesus. Forgiveness is hard. Repentance is hard. Forgiveness is hard, let alone forgiving someone seven times in one day, as the text says. So the disciples ask for more faith. So now we look at the understanding of faith in verses 5 and 6. The, the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The apostles ask Jesus to increase their faith, and Jesus basically tells them they're asking the wrong question. It's not about how much faith they have. It's about having faith at all, even a little faith. One commentator says faith's presence is more crucial than its quantity. So if faith was a test in school, it would be graded pass-fail, not on a percentage basis. Even if you have small faith, Jesus says you can accomplish great things. And I believe that's what Jesus means in verse 6. He's speaking hyperbolically to make a point. A mustard seed is tiny, teensy, tiny. And a faith-filled statement for the tree to be uprooted and thrown into the sea is huge. I believe Jesus is trying to encourage us here. It's not about the size of our faith. It's about the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, good, loving, to name a few. It's about him. One of the pastors yesterday said, hey, you guys, you, Chad, you really got to look up this illustration by, by a theologian named Don Carson. I'm citing my sources, so it's not plagiarism, but I'm totally stealing his illustration. It's amazing and powerful, and I was weeping yesterday watching it five times. He illustrates it this way. He says, imagine two Jews having a conversation on the first morning uh, before the, the evening of the first Passover, on the morning of the first Passover. If you're with us this morning, you don't know the Bible very well, you don't know the stories, I'm going to catch you up really quick. You may be aware that uh, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and God decided he was going to take them out through his servant Moses, and he sent 10 plagues on Egypt and on Pharaoh to get them to say, okay, you guys can leave, you can go, you don't have to be slaves anymore. So God did these nine plagues, and the last one was going to be, he was going to send the angel of death into the land and kill the firstborn of every human and every animal. And, and if the people would kill a perfect lamb, a year-old male lamb without blemish, and wipe the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, that the angel of death would pass over their houses and not kill the firstborn, hence Passover. So now that you understand that, back to the story. Two Jews that morning. We're going to call their names Brown and Smith. And Brown says to Smith, are you pretty nervous about what's going to happen tonight? I mean, this is pretty scary, isn't it? The angel of death. And Smith says, well, I mean, God has told us what to do through his servant Moses. Have you killed the lamb? Have you daubed its blood on the doorposts and on the lintel? Are you prepared to, to cook it and eat it with your family this evening? And are you packed and ready to go? Are you going to eat the meal with your loins girded, ready to leave Egypt? And, and Smith says, well, well, 
I mean, yeah, I, I've, I've done that. You know, I'm not stupid. I, I've, like, I've done those things. I'm ready, but, I mean, considering everything that's happened lately, I, I mean, flies and the Niles turned to blood and frogs and locusts and darkness. And now tonight, the angel of death. And I mean, and you, you have three sons. I only have one, my Charlie. And I love him. And I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm scared. And I can't wait till this night is over. And Brown says, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. And that night, the angel of death sweeps through the land. Which man lost his son? Neither, of course. Neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground or the intensity of the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. I was weeping as I read that yesterday. If you struggle with little faith, it is not about the size of your faith. It is grounded in the blood of the Lamb, in your faith in Jesus Christ. Even a small faith in our great God can accomplish great and amazing things. If that's how it is in our salvation, that's how it's going to be in our discipleship. We can forgive a brother or sister seven times in one day. We can have bold gospel conversations in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. We can do the extraordinary actions of kingdom citizens because we're ordinary disciples of King Jesus. Even if we have a small faith in him, it is in King Jesus. There is such encouragement here. Jesus' call to us this morning is to look to him and not to our faith. God's word says he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. The mustard seed will grow. Our faith will continue to grow as we follow him. Now, in case we're prone to think that if we do have great faith and are great forgivers, that God owes us something, that we're being great servants, Jesus corrects that in the next paragraph, verses 7 through 10. We're gonna un- here we understand our servanthood. Jesus says, If you're a master, if any of you has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, will you say to him when he comes into the field, come and recline at the table? Would he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and then afterward you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The Greek word here for servant is actually slave. A slave is not commended for doing his job. His master is not indebted to him for his service. God is the master. We are the slaves, the unworthy slaves. And that's the truth. We are unworthy. But that's what makes the gospel so sweet. God's standard for his slaves is perfect personal and perpetual obedience. And we have all fallen short of that. Every single person who's ever lived has fallen short of that. We owe him 
everything. Yet because of our sin, we have given him nothing. And he owes us nothing. But because of Christ and because of his personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, he has given us everything. Our obedience as slaves of God, or as Romans 6 says, slaves to righteousness won't cause God to be impressed with us or indebt him to us. And yet, because we are in Christ, we will hear something better than thank you. We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And if that's not enough of a reward, we get him. We get God. We get to be with him. Now by faith, someday by sight, we get the greatest gift in all the universe, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the magnitude of his grace will be appreciated by us even in eternity, for all of eternity. There's this scene in Revelation. John, John has this vision of heaven in Revelation 4. Do I need to do something? In Revelation 4, John has this view of of heaven, and it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. They will cast their crowns at Jesus' feet. Servants of Christ, even the foremost ones, the 24 elders who are wearing these crowns, will not be waiting for a thank you from Christ. We will be worshiping him for his worthiness and not even thinking about ourselves. Anything that would give us status will be rightfully cast down at Jesus' feet. Acknowledging that everything exists for him and through him and by him. So those three paragraphs, sin, faith, and service, our understanding of those things are ordinary aspects of obedient discipleship. But they flow from extraordinary grace, don't they? That's what we'll look at in this final scene, verses 11 through 19. The paragraph starts by reminding us what section of Luke we're in, the Jerusalem journey. It says, on the way to Jerusalem, he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. He's traveling south, and he enters a village, and he's met by ten lepers, and they stand at a distance. And So they must have heard about Jesus. His reputation, you know, was going far and wide. We know this Jesus guy can heal, and so we see in verse 13, they lift up their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. He sends them to the priests. Priests at the time were the ones responsible for declaring formerly unclean people clean. We we read that in the Old Testament, that if someone had leprosy or another skin disease, they could go to the priest and say, look, 
I think I, I've been healed. And the, the priest would say, you're right. I don't see anything on you anymore. You're clean. And that would allow the person to integrate back into society. So, so on their way to the priest, Jesus heals them. And then when they're going to go to the priests, they're going to be allowed to integrate right back into society. So Jesus is healing them physically and socially. They get to just get back to ordinary life. That's an amazing gift. And after they're healed, we read that one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus is really surprised. And we should be too. That only one of the ten returned to give praise and thanks to Jesus. And that that one was a Samaritan. Shouldn't all ten of them, wouldn't the ordinary thing be to to respond to this extraordinary grace? Yet it's only one and it's a Samaritan. Remember, this would have really surprised the Jewish audience because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. We've talked about that through the book of Luke. They were, they were very much a rival people group. They did not like each other. The Samaritan should have been the bad guy according to the Jewish perspective. And yet again, like in the parable of the good Samaritan, Jesus turns the punchline upside down. The good guy is the Samaritan, reminding us again in this gospel that the gospel is for all the nations. The gospel is for anybody who repents and believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I believe that this Samaritan is the only one who is spiritually healed as well. That's what Jesus means in in verse 19 when he says, Rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. And the word well there is the Greek word for saved. All ten lepers experienced extraordinary common grace. But only one experienced extraordinary saving grace. He was healed, most importantly, of his sins. This is the extraordinary experience of ordinary discipleship. A healing touch from Jesus Christ. Our sins forgiven and a reaction to thank and praise God for his extraordinary grace. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I commend that reaction to you. I I commend to you Jesus Christ to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and respond in thankfulness and gratitude and join us as disciples of Jesus. It's just an ordinary life where we're going to walk together until we're there feasting in the house of Zion. Christians in here, each of us became disciples of Jesus on the day that we were born again. On the day that we experienced the extraordinary grace of God in Christ Jesus. And from that flows a life of ordinary obedience. The norm for a life of following Jesus won't be continual, extraordinary, spiritual experiences. Though we may have some of those. We can be thankful and even long for the amazing and extraordinary experiences. That day at the London Olympics was amazing. 
It was totally amazing. I told you, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. But again, I didn't think that the rest of Europe was supposed to be that way. Audrey and I have a healthy, happy marriage, but I don't base the health of our marriage based on the few amazing trips that we've had. On our five-year anniversary, we went to Charleston, South Carolina for 10 days. No kids. It was amazing. But most of our marriage, ordinary, being in love, fighting our sin together, repenting, forgiving, raising kids together, cleaning up messes, regular, ordinary, joyful. And that's going to be the Christian life. One pastor titled his book this way. I've never read the book. I've heard it's good, but I'm not necessarily totally commending it to you. But the title of the book is this, and it's had such an impact on me. I've shared it a lot. It's this. It's a long obedience in the same direction. That's the Christian life, the ordinary Christian life, a long obedience in the same direction. That's going to be the norm for disciples of Jesus. Following him will be more like plowing and keeping sheep than climbing Mount Everest while fighting off dragons. We can overcome temptation. We can forgive and forgive and forgive. We can rejoice in the power of small faith because it's not about the size of our faith, but the object of our faith. We can have a right perspective of being slaves of Jesus. I am unworthy, but that doesn't matter because you are worthy because we have experienced extraordinary grace. And so we can embrace ordinary discipleship joyfully. It might not always be joyfully, but isn't it a joy to plow Jesus' field, to keep his sheep? One of my favorite psalms ever, it's the first psalm I ever preached at this church before I was even staff here, is Psalm 84. The psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And it isn't, isn't it a joy to be a member of the body of Christ? If you're a doorkeeper, isn't it a joy? When is the last time that you, you meditated on what God saved you from and saved you to? When is the last time you thanked God, actually explicitly in prayer, thanked God for his extraordinary grace for you and thanked him for the ordinary means of grace on the path of discipleship? Remember this too, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He was the perfect servant. He died for our salvation. So can we embrace the joy of ordinary obedience that flows from God's extraordinary grace on our path to the feast in the house of Zion? I believe we can. God will do it in us. Praise his name for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. We do acknowledge it is extraordinary and we deeply thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for our salvation and the healing we've received in Christ Jesus. And through that, Lord, we, we, we just joyfully embrace the things you call us to, to being disciples in your upside-down kingdom. Help us continue to, to live lives of holiness and righteousness in community. 
Help us keep a close watch on our lives and our doctrine and have a serious attitude towards sin, a joy in our small faith, and a joy in our unworthiness and the worthiness of Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen.